You're listening to Rounding at Rush, a Rush University Medical Center podcast that features the latest clinical advances, research, and innovations. I'm your host, Dan Dean. Today's guests are Dr. Robbie Malik, a neuromuscular physician in the Department of Neurology at Rush University Medical Center, and Rich Deneen, a certified genetic counselor in the section of neuromuscular diseases at Rush. The focus of our conversation today will center around the role genetic testing plays in the diagnosis and management of neuromuscular illnesses and how Rush is at the forefront of providing the most advanced care to patients with neuromuscular disorders. We'll also touch on some of the exciting research being conducted in this space at Rush. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Malik, I'd like to begin the conversation with you today. Could you start by giving an overview of the role genetic testing plays in the diagnosis and management of neuromuscular illnesses? Yes, absolutely. Genetic testing plays a crucial role in the diagnosis and management of neuromuscular illnesses. It can help provide a definitive diagnosis in cases where clinical symptoms alone may not be conclusive. Neuromuscular disorders often share overlapping symptoms, making it difficult to distinguish between them based solely on clinical presentation. Let me give you an example of a patient that we saw yesterday in our MDA clinic. Uh, This was a 29-year-old man who presented with progressive weakness. His exam was significant for high arches, hammer toes, and decreased vibration in the distal lower extremities, which would suggest uh, the presence of a hereditary sensory motor neuropathy typically. However, he was also noted to have fasciculations over the hands, quads, and perioral region, which is typically seen in motor neuron disease. Finally, he was noted to have winged scapula, which is most commonly seen in muscle diseases. We performed genetic testing, and he was found to have a mutation in the TRPD4 gene, which has been identified in patients with scapuloperineal SMA and CMT2C. Genetic testing in this case was critical in coming to a diagnosis. Aside from the use of genetic testing for diagnostic purposes, Increased accessibility to genetic testing has helped significantly in providing early diagnosis in affected individuals and families, um, helping to reduce the need for additional, sometimes invasive testing. Genetic testing can help families understand the risk of passing on the condition to their children. This information is vital for making informed decisions about family planning and reproductive options. Finally, in this era of gene therapy, genetic information uh, gained from testing can inform the development of targeted therapies and aid in selecting candidates for clinical trials, testing new treatments. So Dr. Malik, one of the things I was curious about in preparing for our conversation today was the ways genetic testing has evolved over the last few years. Could you talk about that as well as some of the latest techniques used to identify genetic mutations? Absolutely, yes. We've come a long way. So the early years of genetic testing involved techniques like karyotyping, which involved examining the number and structure of chromosomes. This was especially useful for diagnosing large chromosomal abnormalities, the kind that you see in Down syndrome. In the 1980s and the 1990s, with the advent of PCR, it allowed for amplification of specific DNA sequences. This enabled the identification of single gene mutations. 
About a decade or so later, the development of automated DNA sequencing technologies such as Sanger sequencing revolutionized genetic testing. It now became possible to sequence entire genes and identify mutations underlying various genetic conditions. About 10 years ago, next-generation sequencing, or NGS, technologies emerged, allowing for simultaneous sequencing of multiple genes or even entire genomes. This led to the rise of panels for specific disorders, whole exome sequencing, and whole genome sequencing, which enabled more comprehensive genetic testing. So advances in next-generation sequences have led to increased speed, accuracy, and cost-effectiveness of testing. So Rich, I'd like to turn to you for my next question. I was wondering if you could touch on the main benefits that early genetic testing can provide for individuals who are suspected of having a neuromuscular illness. Sure. And this always takes an opportunity for me to remind people in our patients that a lot of the conditions, um, an individual may not have a family history. Uh, so although they're genetic, they may not necessarily be hereditary in terms of having a prior family history. Sort of given that information, there's been essentially two approaches to try to identify at-risk individuals in the general population. First that I can think of is, is newborn screening, you know, that test that's done on, any, on every infant uh, shortly after birth. The state of Illinois has been testing for Pompeii disease for many years now. But I can think of with uh, regard to recent developments, the, um, the state of Illinois began screening for spinal muscular atrophy in the year 2020. As treatment is now available for that condition, in a short amount of time, virtually all of the states in the United States are now screening for that condition so that infants can have the benefit of early identification and treatment. As the landscape is also changing for conditions like Duchenne muscular dystrophy, there's also been discussions about whether um, that particular condition should be added to the newborn screening panel. And so uh, discussions continue in that area. A second area that I can think of that uh, is used for screening the general population uh, pertains to individuals who are either uh, planning a family or um, you know individuals who are currently pregnant where they may be offered uh, carrier screening of some type. And that, you know, has also completely changed in the last several years where we used to do carrier screening based upon um, somebody's background and, you know, possibly family history. So for example, if somebody had was of European background, we might offer cystic fibrosis testing. Um, if someone was African-American, sickle cell testing. Well, that's all changed uh, today where we're really offering uh, carrier screening for conditions regardless of background and family history. Uh, a concept which is called expanded carrier screening actually can screen an individual for close to a, a couple hundred different conditions with a single test. Um, and a lot of the uh, focus on that is to, again, to identify couples who may be at risk to have a child with uh, one of these conditions. And again, going back to the newborn screening examples where spinal muscular atrophy and Duchenne muscular dystrophy are parts of those expanded carrier screening tests. 
So Rich, are there any challenges or limitations for using genetic testing with um, patients who have neuromuscular illnesses? Yeah, I'd say one of the you know challenges is really um, keeping current on the genetic testing landscape. Uh, the number of testing options continues to change and uh, different testing laboratories continue to update their genetic technology um, and, you know, and other types of uh, testing methods. For some of the neuromuscular conditions that we work with in clinic, there may be many, many laboratories um, available that can do testing. But then there are some conditions such as FSHD, muscular dystrophy, where there may only be sort of a few um, genetic testing options for the entire country. But part of our job is really to be to be knowledgeable about that information and be able to offer it to our patients. In regard to limitations, I think there are a number of reasons for which genetic testing can be limiting. Sometimes it can be based on a specific condition. So if I think about the general category of type 2 CMT, for example, um, you know, a very large percentage of those patients still don't get informative genetic testing. And that's not because that the testing um, isn't doing its job. It's just pointing out that we still have a lot to learn of, you know, potentially specific genes or other genetic mechanisms that might cause that particular condition. Um, Another area, and even with genetic tests that are we consider to be very comprehensive. So tests like um, whole exome sequencing or WES or whole genome sequencing or WGS, um, there's still uh, certainly patients who have uh, negative test results, even in those instances um, when we strongly suspect that there may be a a genetic cause uh, to their symptoms. And so um, genetic testing has come a long, long way, but, you know, there's still ways for a ways for us to go. So what about the level of accessibility and affordability for genetic testing? Can you talk about that a little bit as well? Sure. And, you know, just like Dr. Malik, I'll use uh, an example from yesterday's clinic, uh, a woman who came in with a, a new diagnosis of CMT1A. Her, her father had had genetic testing back in 2006, and his testing for a single gene cost thousands of dollars back then. Whereas today, you know, she was able to participate in a program and really not have any cost associated with her test. And, and even let's say that there was an instance where her healthcare coverage did not provide coverage for testing, where there's many laboratories that would have done that testing for about $250. So it really just shows, you know, how testing has dramatically decreased in cost, as Dr. Malik had said earlier. And I think probably one of the biggest misconceptions that people have is that all genetic testing is expensive. Um, that being said, there are certain groups where there can be, you know, challenges. And I think particularly um, the Medicare population where Medicare uh recognizes very few genetic tests still at this time where they may recognize genetic tests, say, for the area of cancer, but for very few other areas. That being said, again, our job 
as a clinic is really to know of the available options to patients and um, those continue to increase. So some of those other options continue to be things like uh, pharmaceutical industry sponsor tests um, where uh, genetic testing can be offered to somebody at no cost as well as uh, as long as somebody is sort of comfortable of some of the parameters of participating in that type of testing. And again, there's also cash options for some genetic tests, you know, generally in the area of a few hundred dollars. So I'd say in most situations, we're able to to find an option that works for a patient where everybody feels comfortable uh, proceeding. So I've got a follow-up question that maybe it's for both of you about accessibility. Uh, It's a two-part question. One on just how unique is it for Rush to have this level of genetic testing available to patients? And the second part of that is for referring providers listening in can you talk about the challenges in referring providers maybe not knowing of all the level of genetic testing that's available for their patients? And is there a bridge that you have to cross to help providers in the community and the region know about the offerings that are available here at Rush? Right. So I think the first thing is having the right clinical question, right? And so that's uh, definitely the most challenging piece of uh, neuromuscular illnesses. So you do need a little bit of, of an expertise and experience in recognizing what particular neuromuscular disorder you may be dealing with, because then that would subsequently help with targeted genetic testing. Um, as Rich mentioned, there are now options available for sponsored genetic testing, which are really large panels. So you know, those type of genetic testing and diagnostic studies may be routinely available at most centers, but if those first sort of battery of tests start coming back negative, that's really where the diagnosis sometimes comes into question. And sometimes you need an experienced uh, genetic counselor, especially who has experience in neuromuscular disorders, to direct future diagnostic testing for these patients. And I think what I'll add to that is I'm only as good at my job based on the neuromuscular specialist. So I feel that the neuromuscular specialists absolutely guide me and instruct me in terms of what type of tests that we're looking for for the patients. And my job is to really try to see if I can find a, a laboratory and a testing option that that will work for that patient. Is there any differentiator with this genetic testing that Rush can offer that's different from, say, other non-academic medical centers or even peer institutions within the city? Like, what are some of the differentiators of the offerings that Rush has? Can you talk about those? First is just a general observation for many of the patients that have come to our clinic. You know, many of them have been on a long diagnostic journey, and some of them have even gone through some genetic testing before they've come to see us. Um, But a lot of times where there's been gaps or or sometimes where their genetic testing was many years ago, where genetic testing has changed and is more comprehensive. I'd say sort of uh, another area that ends up being important for uh, patients who are candidates for more comprehensive genetic testing, I'd say that there's an additional area of having to work with that person's insurance 
or healthcare coverage to actually get approval for genetic testing. And that, you know, that sometimes takes some time and some challenges and some, some know-how basically to work or, you know, work with the system and make sure that that testing's approved and that the patient sort of understands the steps that would be involved in, in getting the testing accomplished. So Dr. Malika, kind of the extension of the question that I have is thinking about how the advancements in genetic testing have led to the development of precision medicine for neuromuscular disorders. Could you talk about that evolution in the shift in care? Right. And that's really the next step. And that's what we're most excited about, right? So the genetic testing historically has helped us provide accurate diagnosis, and that was great. But now in this day and age, it's helping identify therapeutic targets that inform development of new drugs specifically designed to address underlying genetic mutations. The poster child for that, of course, are uh, the treatment options that are now available for spinal muscular atrophy, um, SMA. The FDA approved um, a medication called Spinraza or Nusinersen in December of 2016. Uh, Patients with SMA typically do not have a functional SMN1 gene. So they rely on SMN2 gene for production of this important uh, protein that's helpful for nerve health. Um, Spinraza is an antisense oligonucleotide that targets the SMN2 gene and produces its effects by inclusion of exon 7 and subsequent production of full-length SMN2 protein. So in the landmark uh, trial, which was the INDIR clinical trial that led to the approval in infants who were on Spinraza, these kids were more likely to be ventilation-free at 24 months. It resulted in better milestones in SMA infants with two copies of SMN2 and improvement in motor function, which was fantastic. But in 2019, we saw the FDA approval of Zolgensma. Uh, Now, this drug is a little bit different. It's um, an adeno-associated virus, AAV virus, vector-based gene therapy. Uh, In the phase one trial, which was the Avexis 101 study, uh, participants who were SMA children under the age of two received just a one-time intravenous dose of Avexis 10. All of these children achieved ventilation-free survival up to 24 months of age and even further. 11 out of those 12 infants who were uh, treated, they maintained the ability to sit unassisted. Two were even able to stand and walk independently, which was phenomenal. This drug completely changed the historical trajectory of the disease uh, because if you look at SMA kids, only 8% of these patients uh, will typically survive without permanent ventilation at the age of 20 months. And here we were seeing kids who were not only um, um, off of invasive ventilation, but they were achieving motor milestones like sitting up, taking steps, et cetera, which was very, very exciting for us. Rich, is there anything that you would like to add for this? Just the fact that I think uh, a lot of times for the patients that we're seeing in clinics, they often have had their symptoms for many, many years. And, you know, sometimes we'll question what what is the need for, for getting a more specific diagnosis. It's not uncommon that we'll hear the phrase, well, you know, it is what it is, or I have what I have. And it's really trying to educate them of how things, you know, how things have changed a lot. And sometimes knowing your exact diagnosis and specifically if there's a gene that's involved can really make a dramatic difference in terms of treatment options either now or certainly in the near future. So we're definitely in a 
in a hopeful time. And I think trying to to send that message to the patients as well, that we're in sort of a hopeful time period. And, um, you know, there can be definite advantages to, to having a genetic diagnosis. So Dr. Malik, um, with this focus on genetic testing and the precision treatments for neuromuscular diseases, I'm wondering if the push or the interest and the excitement around these gene-based interventions and diagnostics is coming from a particular place within the field. I'm thinking of another example outside of neuromuscular care. For example, Parkinson's disease. There's been a a really strong focus over the last five years on finding the genetic drivers for Parkinson's disease. What was the origin or what has been the, the, the driving force for genetics within neuromuscular care? I think what we are also kind of excited about and hopeful about is extending genetic diagnosis and genetic possibly gene therapy for what we think about as neurodegenerative disorders. So the neuromuscular, the more common neurodegenerative neuromuscular disorder that we see is, of course, ALS or amyotrophic lateral sclerosis or Lou Gehrig's disease. So we initially thought that ALS was perhaps maybe um, 90% of the cases that we were seeing were sporadic and only about 11 to 13% were thought to have a genetic predisposition towards it. But we're understanding definitely that, that there may be a greater genetic component behind ALS. And, you know, I'm very happy to report and very excited to report, report that this year the FDA approved um, a gene-based therapy for ALS, which is phenomenal, right? So I think genetic testing is helping us understand other diseases that were perhaps not recognized as a clear genetic illness a little bit better. Um, and, you know, providing us with some optimism that perhaps, you know, there might be some uh, new treatment options available uh, for these uh, devastating illnesses. So I'd like to wrap up our conversation by talking with you both about ongoing research that's happening at Rush. Rich, um, I'd like to start with you first. Could you give us an overview kind of on the scope of research that's going on um, around um, neuromuscular illnesses? Some of the areas or, or roles that I'll, I'll have in the clinic within the area of, of research is after someone receives a genetic diagnosis, uh, some of the things that we attempt to do, you know, as Dr. Malik alluded to earlier, is number one, are there any currently available clinical trials? But let's say, if for, for example, there is not, there are other things that that, that patient can do almost to describe as an area of like advocacy in terms of uh, one of the things that we'll discuss is signing up with a disease registry where that, you know, often if there are advances uh, in regard to therapy or if there are additional research options, that there's a way for that patient to be notified uh, of those advances. Also, I think as, as our patient population continues to grow, having uh, improved uh, databases of our patient population so that we can also reach out to patient groups when there's been um, advances uh, in treatment or, or, or new options as well. What about from your perspective, Dr. Malik? 
the neuromuscular section at Rush has participated in a number of clinical and observational trials. So uh, we were engaged in uh, drug trials involved in myasthenia gravis as well as um, observational trials there. Uh, we've also participated in uh, clinical trials for patients with neuropathy. And uh, currently there's an ongoing trial, which is more of a natural course and a biomarker trial for ALS. I would also like to mention that our center was one of the first to provide access to FDA-approved medications for Pompeii disease and the new medications that are now available for ALS and some of the gene therapies that I mentioned for SMA, et cetera. So we were very quick able to set up a uh, workflow and put that in place, working with other departments, including interventional radiology uh, uh, in certain cases, to help uh, patients get access to these medications at our center. Thank you both for a wonderful conversation and learning about all the great work that's happening around neuromuscular disorder care at Rush. Absolutely. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. <laughs>